This is my first Harvest podcast, and I'm your host, Mario Chicas. And today I'm joined by Ace Luciano. Ace, can you hear me? Hello. Ace, how are you, sir? I'm good. How are you, sir? I'm good. This is Mario, in case I didn't uh, ever tell you my first name. <laughs> no, that's all right. Yeah. I am almost to my destination in the car. When I pull over, there'll be a lot less noise. I just put my headset on. So, oh, you're okay. I knew it was going to be close. <laughs> oh, that's okay. I think you're so fine So you're right in now. Tu- are you in Tucson? No, so that's what's funny is had I known you were in Cream Creek, I would have just met up with you. I'm in here in Gilbert. Oh, my goodness. I'm in Mesa right now. That's funny. <laughs> I saw. I looked at your so profile. Tell me about but... your... Go ahead. Tell me about your podcast and what you do. You know, I'm uh, I'm in sales and a guy that, that hunts and, uh, well, tries to hunt. And, um, you know, I just uh, started a podcast just interviewing local hunters and just hearing their story, kind of how they came up, you know, got into hunting or who got them into it. Um, yeah. And then just talking about the first harvest. I just figured that, you know, we, we all remember our first and pretty much everything. And um, hunting is, is really no different. I mean, you ask a all the guys I've asked to a man, do you remember your first harvest? They're like, oh, yeah, like yesterday. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. You know, so, uh, and I think you answered the same way. So, um, so that's really it, man. I'm not, um, I was telling my wife, I'm not looking to monetize this thing. I'm not looking to do any of that. Really, it's just oh, something. I hope you make millions. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I'll be coming over to you for some, some whiskey or whatever it is that you like. You know, if it's milk, it's milk. Hey, they just gave Joe Rogan a hundred million bucks for his podcast. You believe that? I do. Yeah. He has 1,400 episodes, long, uh, long format. Like, that's a lot of content. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Just a chat. And all it did for content creators was prove that there's value. Yep. So. Exactly. He's a smart dude. Way yeah. back when, way back when he first started with the uh, uh, UFC, they couldn't get anybody to do it. And he's a martial artist, and he was out there in uh, he's out in Vegas, and just happened to be talking with the guys, and they bemoaned the fact they couldn't find anybody. He goes, "Well, how much does it pay?" And they told him, "He goes, oh shit, you never should have told me that." <laughs> they go, "What do you mean?" He goes. I'd have done it for half that. <laughs> and, like, that, that's when he started doing the, the... He's like, I tell you what, you know, knock a little bit off, but fly me out and put me up in a hotel because I don't live here. And I'll do every one, and I'll travel. And the ones that are out there, I'll travel on my own time. Like, all right, good deal. And that was kind of how he got bigger. He was he was already doing comedy, you know, and, and doing okay at comedy. Yeah. But... I was there when that was going down. And I actually almost went to work with Dana White. No kidding. They so, had so a, hold on. Hold on. Go yeah, back, they go had go a go back to the go back to position. the first Ace, go go back to the first one. So you were you were where? When you said you were there, where's where? Oh, where's Las there? Vegas. Okay. Las Vegas. I was out there consulting and by fortune I met Dana White. I I was doing consulting for a mortgage company. And I was training their people how to close more deals. And through that, I met a realtor who was a really nice gal. And she invited me to, she's on a big party at her house. And she invited me to this party where there was like a hundred people. 
and I met this guy, and we started talking. He's like, uh, what do you do on the weekends? I'm like, mostly I sit bored, or I go fishing, or I go shooting or something. And he, uh, he's like, well, what are you doing Saturday? I'm like, uh, nothing. He goes, want to make a couple hundred bucks? I'm like, sure. He was a photographer, and he was shooting the UFC calendar girl, uh, or the UFC ring girl calendar. In downtown Las Vegas. So what, for like... What, uh, what UFC uh, number was this? Do you uh, five? <laughs> Four? <laughs> with 2006. Yeah. Let's put it this way. I went... I saw... Uh, I saw the first uh, Chuck Liddell uh, Tito Ortiz fight live. No kidding. Where was and that And it was at? only because Dana White gave me a card that said I think it was at the MGM uh, he gave me a card that had a number on the back of it he's like anything here in town any, any fights and regular fights too like boxing matches and stuff too because I was big into boxing and stuff mm-hmm. he's like uh, anything you want to go to you know at any of whatever these venues where he goes go to the ticket box get in this car with this number and he goes you'll get two tickets if they're available I'm like, okay. What he didn't say is I get two of the best tickets available. <laughs> so, like, I was, like, fourth row for that fight. There's how many ones. The one was like, well, I got one. It's him. I'm like, oh, it's just me. So I went and sat there and watched that. And I actually saw him there, and he said, hey, you know. And then I saw I saw a bunch more fights when I was out there. I'll bet I went to a dozen, maybe, maybe even 20. Because there's all kinds of undercut, like low-level fights, yeah. like, you know, on Wednesdays, and, you know, so I just went to a ton of them. Yeah. And they were just, I think it was the first year they had the uh, the show on t- on cable. On Spike TV? I think they had just, st- on Spike TV, yeah. I think that was the first year they had it. It was the year before that, I can't remember, but... Anyway, I was. They had a position open there, and it wasn't Dana. I talked, I talked to somebody else over there, and I found out what they offered for it. And I was thinking to myself, "Boy, that's really not. That's a little bit less than I make now <laughs> doing my own thing, you know." And now I'm kicking myself because could you imagine if I got into UFC and like on stock options and like all kinds of like that would have been awesome. Yeah, but you know, I'd be, at, I'd be retired. At, but you know what though, at that time, where where UFC was, you know, it wasn't until that Spike TV um, deal, until that that actually aired, that MMA became like it got started on its way to where it is now, because yeah, if, if you remember that um, that that show that night, and, I, and I'm my my memory is terrible. I can't remember who it was that fought, but those two guys beat the hell out of each other. And Forrest Griffin, it was Forrest yeah, Griffin and Forrest uh, Griffin. and somebody uh, I forget the other guy. And they did. It was three rounds of war. It was an amazing fight. One probably I think that's rated as one of the top fights of history. Yeah, like exactly. Boxing and all like the best combat sports, you know, matches is because. They were just pounding on each other. Yeah, I, I definitely remember that. Yeah, and you and if you recall, Spike TV 
took Dana and, and whoever the other guy was, like executives or, or whatnot, guys working with Dana, it took him out back where the, the trash cans were in the alley and they wrote up a contract on the napkin because if they didn't sign them that night, somebody else was going to steal them by morning. Is what they said. Oh yeah. Yeah. So yeah, so bet. to your point, you know, at that time they weren't who they are now. But you know, also hindsight being what it is, right? So I actually have Chuck Liddell's cell phone number. You should hit him up. <laughs> I kidding. I actually talk to him quite a bit, actually. Do you? Um. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's a good dude. He is not at all like he's such a nice guy like it's shocking yeah. he has a college degree he is a college graduate take a guess what his bachelor's degree is in psychology nope I have no idea accounting accounting oh you know could you imagine hey I'm Chuck I'm your accountant <laughs> <laughs> It's like the uh, it's like the tattooed realtor uh, sign I saw. Um, where was it? It's like on Higley and like the two hundred two. It's this guy. He's got yeah. tats all over his face and everything. And and um, for those of you who don't know, it's here in Arizona and in one of the suburbs. And it's this huge pink and blue and big old sign. And so yeah, oh, yeah. that's similar to Chuck Liddell yeah. telling you, "Hey, I'm here to do your accounting." So. Well, that's awesome, man. I could talk to you about a bunch of this other stuff. Um, so let me uh, let me get into it with you, with you here. So, where did you um, just start at the beginning? Like, where did you grow up? Kind of take me through your your high school years, and if it hunting started then, you know, you can get into that then. So, I grew up in the Midwest, um, right on the Wisconsin Illinois border, on the Illinois side. I grew up in a little town called Wonder Lake, Illinois. It's a little unincorporated village to this day, actually, of about 10,000 people. Oh, man. Um, It was far enough away from Chicago that it was farm country. Like, I grew up with a corn... To this day, there's still a cornfield and 100 acres of woods across the street from my parents' house. Um, And I was very lucky because my parents grew up in that area. McHenry was the closest town um, to us, and that's where we went for our groceries and everything, and my parents grew up and went to high school in McHenry, and my father had a business. My mother was a teacher, so we were kind of, they were kind of pillars of the community and knew a lot of people, and they happened to go to high school with the largest farmers in all of McHenry County. And, uh, I think when I was a kid, I never realized how lucky I was as a kid because I want to say from the time I was like nine years old until I was probably 22, 23, I had about 4,000, 5,000 private acres (laughs) that I had permission to hunt on, like all around us. So we hunted a lot, you know, um, and we belonged to a hunt club. The pheasant hunting in Illinois, where we lived, wasn't great. So we belonged to a hunt club called Winchester Sportsman's Club. Another missed opportunity. My dad had the opportunity to, uh, with some of the other members, buy that. And he was for it. And a couple of them were against it, voted it down. Everyone would have had to kick in $1,500 mm-hmm. and then keep paying dues. And it would have been self-sustaining. 
Um, they said they couldn't possibly build there. Well, then they passed remediation laws that said you could drain swampland as long as you created it somewhere else. And all the sloughs and marshes and stuff that we had on that club became ponds and golf courses and things. And they would have probably certainly, you know, made millions of dollars on the sale because it was 1,360 acres surrounded by suburbs. Oh, man. So uh, that when that got, and that was actually where I killed my very first animal. Or I had my very first harvest. My very first harvest was a rooster pheasant pointed by my German short hair. Um, I was eight years old. And the dog went on point. My dad handed me the gun. I walked in and flushed it, and I remember it like it was 10 minutes ago. So so before you... coming out. Ace, before you get into that, so um, talk about what what is it like to have a pointer? So a uh, pointer dog. Um, you know, what's that process? Like, I, who trained a dog? Did you help in any of that? Like, whose was um, the dog? In? I did. It was, it was my dog. Her name was Martini. <laughs> Martini had a brother named Rossi and a sister named Asti. And Martini was my puppy. Um, she was actually uh, the result of an accidental breeding by my father's dog, uh, whose name was Brina. And Brina got put into a kennel run with Lake Kennel Savage Sam, who was a very well-known champion pointer at the time, and wound up being bred. We didn't know she was in heat. And so we kept one of the puppies, and I raised that dog. And uh, training a pointer for me was a lot of work and a lot of boring time and a lot of just doing whatever my dad said. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, working with uh, a wing on the end of a uh, fly rod and then working up to like, you know, pheasant wings and then dead pigeons and then live pigeons and doing a lot of uh, obedience work, you know, heel, sit, stay, all of that. Whoa. What was the first one we worked on for days and days and days, it seemed like. Um, but I tell you, you know, you look back and I remember thinking it, it was how boring it was. But now that I'm adult, I realize just what it was like to hang out and spend all that quality time with my dad. Yeah. You know, I, it was, was going to ask you, time. Ace, I was going to ask yeah. you, so did your dad have experience in, in training the, the pointer dogs or did he just kind of work it in with you? He trained his pointer from Richard Wolter's book, Gun Dog, <laughs> and used those same philosophies to train our other pointer. Now, I had that pointer, we got that pointer, I was seven years old. I just turned seven. I had that pointer until I was in college, and I was a junior in college, and I'll never forget, my parents called me up and said, your dog died. Oh. Um, so Ooh, she was what, like... Any 13. warning or old age or just... Old, old, old age. Yeah. She was 14. Yeah. You know? Um, and I had buried her mother when I was 17. My dad got her mother, I think, like the week before I was born. 
So that dog lasted until 17 years old. And I, I actually, I, my dad was gone that week when the dog died and I wound up having to bury her and that was kind of a hard thing. But, uh, but yeah, we trained it ourselves. And ironically, after Brina died, we got a Labrador uh, named Ebony, female lab. She was great. And she died at three from a gastric torsion. And that like began a string of Labradors. I, I haven't owned personally another pointer since that dog when I was a kid. I've had almost all labs, including up until my current dog, which is a chocolate lab, which technically we call my son's dog because he trained her. Mm-hmm. You know, we worked together, but each of my kids, my, my oldest son got a black lab. His name was Caesar. Caesar had some medical issues and had to be put down at four, I think he was. Mm-hmm. And then we got Apollo. And my son Brandon helped train Caesar and Apollo. And then uh, as Apollo was older, he was, I think, seven and a half or eight. We got our chocolate lab for my younger son. And my chocolate lab is now eight. It's time to get another dog. And I'm like beating myself up. Do I want to get a pointer or do I want to get a Labrador? And I just keep thinking, I don't know. I just like labs. They're easy. They're easy going. They're great family dogs. They don't have all that, like, rambunctiousness that the pointers have. You know, they're not here, there, boom, 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 everywhere. They're kind of more laid back. Yeah. And they fetch ducks and geese, too, which we don't do a lot of here, but we do some. Yeah, some. Some. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's, but yeah, having, uh, I'm a big fan of kids training dogs. It's good for them. Yeah, so. Good for the kid and good, good for the dog. Sure. So you spend the time you know, working with the dog, Martini, right? And um, with your dad. And so um, set up the, uh, set up the the hunt, you know, where to, where'd you guys go? And um, it sounds like it was you, your dad and Martini. And um, kind of walk me through that hunt again. Well, it was, uh, it was, I want to say, late September and every weekend when I was a kid we went to the hunt club what we did so my dad and I did together between September and April every, almost every weekend we were hunting if we weren't deer hunting somewhere we were pheasant hunting and that was kind of what I grew up doing and I had been going with my dad for a very long time already by the time I was by the time I was eight years old I started walking going out with him when I was five so knew what it was I knew what the, uh, you know, what the, the the drill was. I knew how the dog worked. I knew how we, I was, I was an old pro. I carried a, a uh, BB gun. Mm-hmm. I had a BB gun to work on gun safety for a year. And I was actually still carrying that BB gun when I got to shoot my first cousin. My dad swapped me the, a, a Beretta 20 gauge over under. was what I shot my first cousin with. So you and like carry, I said, the dog ran your, up, went on point. So you were carrying your BB gun in the field, like to practice, you know, muzzle, you know, muzzle yeah. direction, muzzle control, and all that. Um, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. That's a good. Every idea. kid, every kid does that. Like that. That's just again. That's just the way we were raised. Yeah. And it's one of the things actually in my 
you know, shameless self-plug, I wrote a book called Guns the Right Way. And in the book, you'll see right there, there's pictures there of my own daughters practicing with a gun. <laughs> so, nice with a BB gun, you know, walking around practicing safety. Yeah. But, okay, and then back to the hunt. Yeah. So, so you were hunting what animal? Pheasants. Yeah. We're, we're um, we were hunting pheasants that day, and we uh, that was what we hunted most then. I didn't see my first big game animal until I was 12. Yeah. So, and back then, a lot of states foolishly uh, made people wait until they made kids wait until they were 12 before they were allowed to hunt. The state I was in, ironically, Illinois, which is not a really gun-friendly state. (laughs) um, So I've heard. They allowed hunting, yeah, they allowed hunting as soon as you could pass the hunter safety course. Yeah. Well, I passed the hunter safety course with a 98% at seven years old. And they didn't want to let me get into the class. My dad had to argue to get me in the class. He goes, look, I paid the money. The kid's going to do the class. And I'll bet he outscores some some of the adults in this class. And I did, you know. Yeah. Um, so you got the pheasant, and Pointer does its job. Martini does her job. And uh, yeah. do you remember what kind of gun you shot? What did you use? Yeah, it was a Beretta, uh, a Beretta over-under. Nice. That is still in the family. My It's my sister's gun now. Yeah, that was because be my Because my question. dad is, yeah, my dad is, uh, my dad's only about five four, so he and I'm six feet tall, just shy of six feet tall. Mm-hmm. So he's got a much shorter length of pull than the average guy, mm-hmm. and he had it. That's one of the few guns he had that was cut down that that I could shoot. So oh, it fit me. That makes. Sense. And I shot that gun for probably. I think I shot that gun till I was about 14, 15. So, yeah. So, yeah, we spent, like I say, a lot of weekends doing that. Yeah. So, your first big game, tell me about that hunt. Yes. My first big game animal, my family had a farm in Montana. And my very first big game animal was uh, a four corn mule deer. And I got to tell you, like, that was the most miserable hunt. That I mean, you know, back then, I tell my kids all the time how spoiled they are because mm-hmm. now that I work in the industry and have all these connections and, quite frankly, have money, <laughs> you know, enough money to buy good things. Yeah, I buy them the best gear. So, they've got great boots. They've got great, uh, you know, great coats, great stuff. Man, I had a pair of rubber boots that were only half insulated, and I had to wear bread bags on my feet to get them in and out. And the warmest day we had that week was minus 10. Oh, man. So it was brutally cold. I mean, brutally cold. Who who were you out there with in that hunt? Uh, I hunted with my dad. We hunted for six days. And when I say hunted, we would, like, go out as long as we could, go to the truck or go to the, the uh, bunkhouse and warm up and go out as long as we could and do, get whatever we could done, you know, and go out. But it was brutal. 
I mean, it was not, you yeah. know, we were, uh, we were absolutely just dying. And so it was, uh, what, let me ask you this, Ace. It so was a hard what's, hunt. Uh, what's, what's the landscape out there? I mean, it's, it, I've been out there once and granted it was only for a couple of days, but, um, are you in, in mountainous area? Is it kind of flat, you know, prairie area? So getting at is to, to add to the misery, like, is are you sitting in the wind and trying to class these things down? Oh, yeah. Or? Well, there was there was actually two areas, one in the river bottom and the other up on, on the flats. And up on the flats was, like, grassland and coolies. And the river bottom, it was river bottom land, trees and, you know, brush and... Mm-hmm and other stuff, but you couldn't sit for very long because it was just too cold, yeah. you know? Um, and so this was a rifle hunt, I assume? It was a rifle hunt, yep, and I shot my, I we had brought out my dad's .30-06 for me to use, mm-hmm. and I, was, I had developed a pretty significant flinch because that thing was just, it was just too much gun for me. Yeah. But I wasn't yeah. gonna not shoot, you know? And so my uncle saw me shooting to sight in and he gave me to use his six millimeter Remington. So I actually shot my first deer with a six millimeter Remington, kind of an odd caliber. How far, uh, how far was your shot? Was 275 yards. And it was in the last half hour of the last day of the season. (laughs) So... So who, kind of a, who sees the who sees the mule deer come out? So tell me about like you're sitting there waiting last thirty minutes. We've all been there, right? We're all thinking, Golly, yeah, it's not going to happen this time, man. I only got thirty minutes left, and it's freezing. I've been out here freezing for six days. You know, got snot all over my gear, got snot all over my clothes. Yeah, it's freezing. Um, so so who sees the mule come out? Well, we were. Uh we were actually walking and looking down into the coolies because we couldn't sit and we couldn't, the deer weren't moving because it was so cold. Uh-huh. And my dad, we came up over a ridge and he looked over his shoulder and he goes, there's a deer here. There's a deer right across the, across the valley. So we got up there and looked and this is back before the days of, you know, range finders. And he's like, just aim just where, you know, just where I told you. He goes, it's inside of 300. And uh, I aimed, you know, aimed for somewhere along the midline of the body behind the shoulder. Mm-hmm. And one shot, he just flopped a little bit in his bed, and then that was it. And the great thing was my uncle got to watch the whole thing. He saw the deer. He was down in the, in the truck driving to see if maybe he could find some other stuff. And he happened to see that deer go up in bed. And he was watching the binoculars, and then he saw us come over the ridge. So he saw it, saw it happen. <laughs> and it was kind of a, that was kind of a cool thing because he, you know, my uncle was one of my heroes and my idols when I was a kid growing up. He was an anesthesiologist in Billings. And a lot of people, you know, a lot of people say, a lot of people want their kids to grow up like them, and they say, oh, you, you know, you want to be like your dad. My dad was in construction, and though he's a very smart guy, and I love him with all my heart, he and my mother did not want me to be like and grow up like him. They wanted me to grow up like my Uncle Lance. Oh. They said, you know, your Uncle Lance is a doctor. He hunts all over the world. 
you love to hunt, therefore you'll be a doctor. And that didn't quite work out that way, but I did work in the medical field for a long time. Yeah. Um, and it was great that he, uh, that he got to see that. And it was cool that I got to use his gun. And ironically, he just passed away this past year. And I just went and hunted at the family farm where I haven't been in 20 years. My, my, fam- my father and my mother sold out of it. And we kind of did other things. Um, but I went back and hunted with my cousin this year because my uncle died. And my daughter and I both shot great deer. And uh, it was ironically minus nine. <laughs> Only this time we had we had the right gear and we had a little little uh, what do you call it the little uh, uh, buck hut uh-huh. you know to sit in with a heater and all that that yeah. was much more pleasant yeah you know but it was great that was her first buck she's only shot two does up to this point she shot two does and a, a cow elk oh and uh, she shot a really nice eight pointer and I shot a really good ten point. Yeah, well, with uh, with your permission, oh. we'll have to have her on the podcast. You can tell me about her first harvest, her first big. Oh, well, I guess maybe it's not her first harvest. I should ask you. It was her first buck. Her first harvest was a was a white-tailed doe in in uh, Prairie du Chien, Wisconsin. Oh wow! So, yeah, but she would tell you the same thing. But yeah, that first hunt was—I'll never forget. When we we took it out and field dressed it. I didn't want to get my gloves all bloody, so I took my gloves off, and then my dad handed me the heart and liver. And my uncle came, gave me his gloves, and said, "Put these on." And I was just appalled because they were really nice Gore-Tex gloves, and he wanted me to stick my bloody hands in them and, and just hold on to the stuff with it. He's yeah. like, "Don't wash." And so, what what, what year <laughs> is know? this? What year is this? And you're, and you're talking about your mule deal, right? Your your um, yeah. your first mule. Um, and the reason yeah, I'm asking 1985. what you, yeah, so Gore-Tex is what like a couple years old, you know, at that time as a company. Yeah, brand new. And so he's giving you brand these, new technology. these beautiful, you know, warm looking and just, you know, really cool gloves to get all bloodied. And you're like, seriously? <laughs> oh, that's yeah, awesome. But it man. was, what a good dude. It was great. And now I've had literally thousands of hunts in between. Yeah. You know, and, it, and you know, what's funny is I still get excited. I still, I'm still as excited as when I shot my first year. I was so excited when that 10-pointer stepped out this year, I, I could hardly contain myself. And I've shot, I'll bet I've shot 100 deer. Yeah. You, <laughs> you know, know it, So you know what's crazy, Ace? And, and um, it, that's the thing for me is I, I, whether I hear, you know, somebody like yourself tell me about it or, you know, another buddy of mine, the guys that are, seem to be the most successful they just don't lose that oh there it is you know like every time you see the the antlers turn you're like oh there it is again you know like i i could just sit there and and even does too and obviously bucks it's just a whole nother level of excitement it seems but just watching them in in the wild you know just doing their thing especially sitting on binos far away it's just yeah you know they know you're around right because they they're so good at knowing when they're in danger or whatnot but i just love that and i I love that um again the guys that are are, seem to be the most successful that i know they just love every second of it all the time um and i think that's pretty cool but literally the only reason i go to work because the government will feed my wife and kids 
they won't pay for ammo or tags. <laughs> yeah, so you know, I, I so, checked out your uh, I checked out your Facebook bio a little bit there before we came on, and, and you've yeah. got you've got quite the resume here. Um, you know, if, if this thing blows up, I mean, talk about you know some of the opportunities. I mean, you've got you know your pro team on Old Town Canoes and Kayaks, pro member at Rivers yeah. West, pro staff of Mossy Oak. I mean, you're you're an outdoor professional at BGA Enterprises. What is what is that? If you're allowed to say or that, can't say. That that's my company. That's that's just my LLC. Mm-hmm. I do a lot of different things. I write for a bunch of different publications in the industry, and I do a lot of sales consulting. Um, I do marketing consulting. I do marketing plan revisions. I do business plans. You know, guest speaker, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. So I've been right now. I'm down a little bit. I usually average about eighteen to twenty NDAs at any given time, and I think now I'm down to like eleven. But I work just with a bunch of different companies in the industry, doing sales, marketing, and consulting, and teaching them about basically sales. Ironically, there's a lot of companies in this industry that, you know, they sell a lot of product in spite of their efforts, not because of them. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. It's just it's interesting. Um, let me just do a couple of. Um, a couple of questions with you here and um i always sure. say it's rapid fire but it never turns out to be rapid fire so you you can do rapid fire if you want to um do you remember your first binos uh my first binos were a pair of casco seven by 35 oral prisms they were hand-me-downs from my dad mm-hmm. he got himself a pair of zeiss 10 by 40s for the ungodly sum of $400, which I'd happily pay for anything Zeiss made. Right. <laughs> but. Yeah, back in the day, though, 400 bucks. Man. Oh, yeah. 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 Um, they, they were, they had a leather case. I'll never forget. They had like a hard leather case with velvet on the inside. Oh, man. Yeah, you got to protect those puppies. <laughs> yeah. Your, uh, your first boots. Uh, my first boots were northern rubber boots that had a little cam buckle system on them. They had like five buckles, and they were insulated in between the rubber and the liner inside. They were completely waterproof, and for everything else, they sucked. <laughs> <laughs> I'll never forget when I got my first pair of Sorels. I think I was probably... I was probably 13 or 14 when I got a pair of Sorrells, and I thought, man, that was the cat's meow. <laughs> and then when I was 17, I got a pair of Lacrosse Ice King boots. And man, for sitting on a stand at the time, there was nothing better. My feet were never cold again. Oh, wow. Yeah, isn't it interesting the, the different gear you have in different uh, zones of the country, you know? Just the, the different elements. Oh, that my you kids have no idea. They, <laughs> they literally have no idea. Yeah. You know, I think my my son's got a pair of $150 boots. My daughter's got a pair of $200 boots, you know. They all have Rivers West gear. They all have, you know, the best thing you could imagine for, you know. I mean, basically the best that we can afford is what they get. Yeah, I I hear so. you. My my brother-in-law, his his son is is the first of really like the family to to be hunting and he's I think he's 12. And so 
you know, he's yeah. out there and he's got full um, Sitka gear and he's got all this stuff. Oh, and, yeah. You know, there's a little bit of a story there, but still, it's like, dude, I don't have all Sitka gear. Like, I don't have everything Sitka. So you're right. I mean, it, some of it is, is, is pretty funny, but at the same time, you want them to enjoy it, right? Because the more they enjoy it, then the more they'd be out there with you and, and you know, the memories yeah, that you but, have you with know, your father, you know, being out there. I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan of spending money on quality gear. But even I don't wear sick of gear because I think it's just insane. <laughs> yeah. Like I said, <laughs> you know? there's a story there, so it's a little bit of a hookup because other than that, he wouldn't do that. But, um, right. you know, but you're right because spending $280 for a pair of pants that more than likely you're still going to be cold in. <laughs> it's just right. nuts. It's just nuts. Right. <laughs> so. right. I, I, it, it's insane. You know, I think I looked at a full outfit. It's like $1,100. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? When it comes down to it, fleece is fleece. Yep. You know, soft shell is soft shell. Gore-Tex mm-hmm. is Gore-Tex. Yeah. You know, and uh, granted, there is there are some that are very cheap, but man, I I tell you, probably the thing that has saved my ass more times in the backcountry than not are two things: spare socks and a compressible down or compressible uh, primal loft jacket. Those have been those are the things that have always saved me. Yeah, the socks, man. So I, I would think those are the best thing. Yeah, yeah the socks. You can't go yeah. wrong. You know, I've um, been wearing the darn tough socks for the last four or five years. You know, when for both, when it's really warm or when it's you know gets colder for us. Um, which yeah. I always think it's funny that people think it doesn't get cold in Phoenix because it was thirty-one degrees. <laughs> You know the last right. uh, in the last couple of weeks, you know, so not consistent, but, um, but yeah, so yeah, I agree with you. Getting some good gear is important. So going back to the questions here, so uh, what's your favorite snack when you're out there? Oh, I I eat the perfect hunting food. Do you know what the perfect hunting food is? <laughs> Jerky snack size Snickers bars. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's got a little bit of everything. Well, they're a perfect balance of it's ironic. I learned that when I, I attended the American Wilderness Leadership School back when I was 15 years old. And they're like, this has everything you need to survive. It has protein, it has fat, it has carbohydrate. Car- carbohydrate makes you warm now. You know, mm-hmm. uh, protein makes you warm an hour from now, and fat makes you warm the rest of the day. The rest of the day I'm yeah. like, dang. And I always remember that. So, like, whenever we go hunting and it's cold, I always have a bag of those those uh, snack size Snickers bars. It's really the only time I eat them too. I don't ever pick up a candy bar. I rarely eat candy, but when I'm hunting, that's what I do. Probably my next my next big thing that I always take. It's tradition opening day of deer season in my my pack. I will always have a meatloaf sandwich. I will always have two apples. I will always have a couple of slices of cheese and a couple of things of beef jerky. That's like my opening day or opening weekend, you know. Is that take uh, out. is that that's tradition or that you've always done that? Yeah, it's it's tradition. My mom would always make meatloaf the night before so we could have meatloaf sandwiches uh-huh. when we went hunting. Yeah. And now my wife has taken my unfortunately my mother passed away back in April. 
but my wife has taken over the, uh, she's taken the mantle and she happens to make pretty damn good meatloaf. So it worked out. There you go. Sorry to hear about your mother. Um, yeah. What's the, uh, the smartest animal you've hunted? The smartest animal I've hunted? Probably, I would say leopard. Dang, where were you hunting? We were the, uh, we were in Zimbabwe, Africa. We're hunting leopard with dogs. We're the second party to do that in 200 years. And, uh, there was a leopard that we kept getting on that was, man, he was the smartest cat in the world. They knew exactly who he was too. First of all, the trackers in Africa, they're unbelievable. You know, they can track a beetle across a rock. They're amazing, right? And they would look and they saw on this guy's track, he had a one mangled up toe. And so they always knew when we were on him. And as soon as we got on him, we were new. It was like an all day deal. And man, they'd, they'd bay him and, the second we get close, he'd jump out of the tree or run out of the hole and he'd run again. He's the only cat that we knew that, that ever figured out that when the people come, that's the danger. So he could sit there and rest and just wait until he heard us coming and then leave. Mm. <laughs> so that dude was smart. Wow. Um, and I don't know that they ever killed that leopard. We got two, not him. Hmm. So nice. Um, did you uh, did you get out much last year here in Arizona? And, and if you did, were you guys successful last year? Uh, my daughter shot for uh, cow elk last year. Oh, nice. Where was and that And my other daughter, uh, that was up in Unit 23. Okay. Oh, I love and that unit. Right before she shot that cow elk, we had about a 380-inch bull at 15 yards. <laughs> Bugling. <laughs> going crazy. Does she only have a cow tag? She's like, yeah, she's like, are you sure I can't shoot that? I'm like, I'm sure, don't shoot that one. No, don't shoot that one, And then we shot the cow that was with him, and uh, he stuck around while we field-dressed her and backed her out. He never never left for basically three hours it took us to get everything out, and he was within 150 yards just going in a big circle and screaming his head off. It was kind of cool. Really? Yeah. Were you afraid that thing was going to come after you? Are they known to do that? Well, then it would have been a case of self-defense. Yeah. (laughs) I was hoping he would. So you were hoping he would? (laughs) Like when they saw the bullet hole in in between his eyeballs when I shot him at four feet. Yeah. I could say, see, it was self-defense. Yeah. Then I have elk and nice pictures because you can't keep those. No. (laughs) But. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that weird they don't let you keep that? Like. What are you going to do oh, with they, the meat? Oh, they can't because then someone would say, they give, they use the meat. They, oh, okay. They'll take the whole thing. Okay, so at game least they fish. use well, the you meat. You have to call game fish, they take it off. Yeah. Yeah, they use it. Okay, that makes yeah. me feel better. Yeah, but otherwise then everybody would have all kinds of cases of self-defense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you yeah, know? exactly. They'd be like, yeah, this, this 200-inch mule deer tried to gore me. And <laughs> I just happened to shoot him broadside. You know. Yeah, well, that's a kind of a defenseless uh, position there. It didn't look like he was coming at you. No, no, yeah. he was. Trust yeah. me, he was. That's interesting. Um, well, I think we'll stop there. I don't want to take too much of your time. I really appreciate you, you know, making the time that's to come pleasure. on and and um, it's been fun. You know, I, I I'm just for whoever's listening. You know, we um, never met, 
And that's really what I like about this. It's just that the guys that I've talked to, um, you know, that are going to come on or that have come on, a lot of these guys I don't know, but we all have something in common. Yeah. And we'd love to hunt and get out and just see what you talked about, you know, spending time with your dad and spending time with your uncle. I mean, these things that you'll you'll never forget, you know. So um, I think that's pretty cool. And you have an awesome story. And you're a... You're out there all the time, man. So that's awesome. So, again, I want to thank you. Well, for... I tell you, the biggest, go ahead. The biggest thing about hunting is spending time with family. And I'm a lucky kid, man. My dad took me hunting all the time. I know parents that don't take their kids hunting, and I, I can't even imagine that. All I ever wanted to do when I was a kid was hunt with my dad. That's all I want to do today. Yeah. He's standing here next to me. Yeah, that's <clears throat> so. awesome. Yeah, you know, I tell you, my. Uh, my older brother came out with me the last couple of years and you know, we were not successful. They were both elk hunts up in unit eight, but I'll tell you what, we had a hell of a time, laughed a lot and ate some, some good Turkey and cheese sandwiches. And that's what we remember, yeah. you know, and it was, it was awesome. So I agree. I agree with you wholeheartedly. So, but, uh, well, well someday said, I'll come on and tell you about the time I got lost and had to spend the night out twice. Yeah, and you know, if, uh, or as I like to tell it, the story of how I got a GPS for Christmas. Yeah, <laughs> I'd love to hear that, and you can couple that with if you have one of your biggest misses, your biggest regrets. We can put that together and say, "Hey, this guy got away from me." We can we can have that podcast too. I plan to do that in this podcast. So, um, oh, I got one of those too. Yeah. You're a hunter for three years within. Well, don't 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 don't, don't give it away. Don't give it away. <laughs> so I'm going to have you back on and save right. your information. So, But Ace, thank you so much again, man. appreciate you and be safe out there and take care, okay? I will. That's great. Take care, sir. Thank you. All right. Bye. Bye. Guys, if you haven't tried Ride On Optics, it is the time to do so. Um, so Optics, a grassroots company started by... Um, the Speths and um, you know it got some some awesome glass some different red dots and um, some optics you can get they actually got some new gear actually some different accessories some hats and different shirts that you guys can get so um, as I said before I've made no secret that I'm on the right ons pro staff and um, you know it's it's fun it's a uh, it's a really cool way to get the word out on a on an awesome product that's veteran owned and operated here in Tucson. All the you know quality checks are done in Tucson, um, so you know great warranty as well. So guys, get out there and check on Right On Optics, and um, you know I want to thank Ace Luciano for coming on again, and um, I also want to thank all the first responders, uh, men and women, uh, keep us safe. You know the military. You know, Secret Service, with all these crazy things going on, and um, you know, I just want to thank all those people that uh, make it safe for us to be able to do what we do here, day in and day out. And uh, in my opinion, in the greatest country in the world. So, um, again, God bless all of you, and uh, we'll talk to you all soon.